Well, thanks. I appreciate the invitation and, and the introduction, and uh, it's my pleasure to uh, share with you some interesting patients. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, when I first uh, decided I wanted to be a dermatologist, uh, it came about uh, when I was on a plastic surgery rotation in medical school, and uh, we were called to, to see a patient and to debride some skin lesions. Uh, and we debrided them and debrided them, and they just kept growing larger and larger. Uh, and uh, finally, the, the plastic surgeons decided to call the dermatologist in, and it ended up being a patient with, uh, with sweet syndrome and atypical pyoderma gangrenosum. And I thought, wow, that's pretty neat uh, to be able to actually look on the skin and make a diagnosis by what you're seeing visually. And also, the idea that, that the skin really is an interface uh, with many other uh, diseases. And we all are, are, are very familiar with some of the cutaneous signs of, um, of internal disease. And so that's, that's some of the patients we're going to be looking at. We'll be looking at a few pediatric uh, patients, some interesting infections, uh, and just some interesting patients. Th th these are the kind of patients that, you know, you hope don't walk into your clinic at 4.30 on a Friday. Because uh, you're ready to get out of the office. It's going to really require some thought. Uh, but I hope you enjoy them. Uh, and I, yeah, so I, I call them beyond acne and warts. We all love acne and warts, but, uh, but th these cases kind of keep our gray cells stimulated here. So I, I don't have any financial uh, conflicts. Our first patient here is a 43-year-old Caucasian male. Now he presents with a pyritic lesion on his left thigh. And you can, you can see this right here. Uh, it's, it's this kind of red, indurated plaque. Uh, it's very firm. If you could feel it, it would feel like it's really going down deep. And you see the central area of hyperkeratosis and almost appears to be like a, perhaps a pore with, with extruded college, uh, keratin coming out on the surface. And here's, here's a closer look at it. Fairly nondescript. Figure that this one's going to need a biopsy. A little closer. So, the clinician did a nice deep punch biopsy. And uh, now, now y'all are, are certified dermatopathologists from that last lecture. You, 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 can, you can identify all the structures. So, so this, should, this is a nice follow-up for you guys. Um, but you see, here's the normal epidermis here. And this is what's going on. This is this large cystic structure. Uh, and there are a few unusual things about this cystic structure. One is this area down here, and other is this area up here. Let's look at it a bit closer. These are atypical keratinocytes, and they have this glassy appearance. Uh, and this really has uh, an atypical squamous appearance here. Down deep, we see these cells. And these cells are sebaceous cells. They, they are lobules of sebaceous glands, uh, that have too many of the germinative cell layers. And so, that, so we have sebaceous and we have an atypical squamous component. What do we have here? Well, we've got a mouthful. This is a cystic sebaceous adenoma with keratoacanthoma-like features. Now you say, well, 
So what? What does this mean? Do I need to cut it out? What, what, what else do I need to do with this? And the interesting thing about this particular lesion is that these lesions are associated with a specific syndrome, Muratori syndrome. Have you all heard of Muratori syndrome? Some of you guys have? Okay. You may get reports back, and it's typically sebaceous adenomas. And they may say some patients with similar sebaceous lesions might have Muratori syndrome. So you might want to check that out. Well, let's talk about Muratori syndrome. Um, in Muratori syndrome, there's an association of cutaneous sebaceous tumors with visceral malignancies. The sebaceous tumors are typically sebaceous adenomas, sebaceous epitheliomas, sebaceous carcinomas, uh, and some keratoacanthomas. Of course, most keratoacanthomas are not associated with Muratori syndrome. You have to have a sebaceous element to it. Now, sebaceous hyperplasia, which you see all the time, is not a, a part of this syndrome. Patients with Muratori syndrome may have sebaceous hyperplasia, but any you know, garden variety, older, uh, middle-aged patient with sebaceous hyperplasia does not have Muratori syndrome. Some of these tumors have overlapping features and are somewhat difficult to classify, but there are certain histologic patterns that are more specific, such as the cystic sebaceous adenoma that we have here and keratoacanthoma-like proliferations showing sebaceous differentiation. Now the carcinomas, the visceral malignancies that are associated with this uh, entity are typically from the GI tract, most commonly. The GU tract is also involved uh, and detection of these neoplasms most commonly precedes the biopsy of the sebaceous neoplasm, but may occur at the same time at about 6% of, of cases, and, or it may follow the biopsy of a sebaceous adenoma in about 22% of cases. Interesting that these carcinomas are typically less aggressive than um, as compared to sporadic for instance, uh, colonic carcinoma. This is an autosomal dominant uh, disorder with a high degree of penetrance, and it but it does have variable expressivity. And it's considered to be a subtype of the more common hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer syndrome. It's due to mutations in DNA mismatch repair genes, and they're listed here, MSH2, MLH1, MSH6. Now, why that's important is because now we actually have immunostains that we can look for these genetic defects. And so um, uh, some of these tumors, you can, have actual, you can actually do these stains and to see if, if they have a defect in these genes. And uh, if there's an absence of nuclear staining, that indicates that there is a defect present. So this is our patient, MSH2. This is the most commonly mutated gene. And you can see this is the sebaceous uh, portion of the tumor. And the nuclei are blue. They're not, th these are, this is positivity. And certain cells do stain positive. But most of the neoplasm is not staining with this um, preparation. So this indicates that there is a defect in this gene. The MLH1 does stain positively here with, with the brown staining being positive in, in the nuclei, uh, as is the MSH6. So in this patient, uh, the clinician said, well, he's got sebaceous hyperplasia as well, which 
doesn't really apply. Uh, but he had had a previous biopsy of a sebaceous adenoma in 2005, and it has a pretty strong family history of colorectal uh, carcinoma in, the, in his mother. Patient was evaluated and at this time did not have any carcinoma, but that's important because now this patient is going to be followed closely for any uh, development in the future. So here are the take-home points. Uh, cystic sebaceous adenomas and keratoic anthomas with sebaceous differentiation are really specific markers for muratory syndrome. And now we can perform immunostudies to look for these specific gene defects. So the next time you get a, a biopsy report sebaceous adenoma or a funny sebaceous neoplasm, uh, think muratory syndrome. All right, let's look at our second patient. Now this patient is an 81-year-old gentleman, and he presented with multiple deep nodules on the leg, uh, on the legs primarily. Uh, these were slightly tender, but they, you know, they had that deep look. You think this is a subcutaneous process. Did have a past history of colon cancer, but no fevers or weight loss. And of course, you know, subcutaneous processes are, are, are challenging to uh, photograph, and I hope you can appreciate here down near the ankle is an infiltrative, slightly erythematous plaque. Here's on the, the near the pretibial surface, almost kind of an erythema nodosum type of lesion. And if this is all the patient had, you might think, well, this is pretty good for erythema nodosum. Well, he also had lesions like this, almost a fluctuant plaque, deep-seated nodule on the hand, on the finger. So, you think it's subcutaneous. You think, well, this is probably a paniculitic process. I'm going to do a deep punch biopsy because I want to get deep to look at the fat. And that's real important. When you're thinking deep processes, you want to go deep with your punch or excisional biopsy. And um, the clinician did a very nice deep punch biopsy. And you can see up here, the epidermis and dermis are really unremarkable. But this is what's going on down in the, in the deep fat. And as we look closely, the fat is just entirely necrotic. And it's got a few little uh, signs here that are very specific. You see these little rounded structures? And they have a little basophilic, a little bluish tint to it. These are necrotic ghost cells from adipocytes that are just necrosing and are undergoing what's called saponification. The fat is just saponifying. And this is extremely specific for this entity, which is pancreatic paniculitis. Now, we, as, as dermatopathologists, we hate seeing paniculitis because, I mean, it's almost always nonspecific. Or if it's not erythema nodosum, you know, then, then there's a long list of uh, historically recognized paniculitides, but, but they're, they're they're, they're, they are challenging. Uh, to, to be real specific about them. But this is one that is very specific and you, you need to be aware of. The patient had additional studies, screening blood tests, which were normal. Pancreatic, so we missed the, this must have to, something to do with the pancreas. So uh, amylase and lipase were performed and they were normal. So we get a call from the clinician and say, listen, the pancreas looks normal, screening blood tests are normal. Do we really need to do a CAT scan to look at this patient's pancreas? And the answer is definitely yes, because this patient had a nice-sized tumor at the head of the pancreas. 
So let's talk about pancreatic paniculitis. In these patients, uh, well, two to three percent of patients with pancreatic disease can, can develop pancreatic paniculitis. The pancreatic or the paniculitic lesions are typically uh, located on the thighs, the buttocks, the lower trunk, distal extremities, and the pancreatic processes primarily are pancreatitis usually acute pancreatitis, but it can be seen in patients with chronic pancreatitis. But pancreatic carcinoma is the one that we don't want to miss because, you know, pancreatic carcinoma is, is one of those carcinomas that just is a cult and, and usually don't catch it until it's too late. Uh, and this is, this is one, of the, one of the ways that the pancreatic carcinoma shows its head. Um, and especially the acidic cell subtype of pancreatic carcinoma. Other pancreatic uh, disorders listed here, pseudocyst, um, fistulas, pancreatic divism, can lead to a low-grade pan uh, paniculitis as well. The paniculitis and the necrosis in the fat is caused by the enzymes, the lipase and, and amylase that are secreted. Um, so... The workup does include these enzymes, amylase, lipase, screening blood tests, uh, LFTs, certainly, but you need to image the pancreas to make sure that there, there isn't a tumor there. The key points here are that this is a specific type of paniculitis. It's uncommon. It's rare. You, you know, if you see it once or twice in, in your career, you know, good for you. Uh, but, but it is so specific, and you can really make a difference in a person's life. So it's, it's, it's real important to be aware of it. It is associated with pancreatitis, pancreatic carcinoma. Uh, you must evaluate the pancreas with enzymes and scans. And the treatment of this disorder is directed at the pancreatic process. There's, you, know, you can inject these with steroids. or you know, Nothing's really going to affect it unless you deal with the pancreatic disorder. All right. Let's look at our third patient. This is a 44-year-old African-American male. He's HIV positive, and he has a recent onset of sclerosing cholangitis. Now, the patient is on highly active antiretroviral therapy, and he presents with relatively rapid uh, onset of numerous yellowish papules, and plaques, and nodules that are widely distributed on his body. So let's take a look at some of these. You can see these variably sized papules and nodules really just studying his abdomen, all over his back, on his leg, thigh, on the elbows. Some of these you can really get a sense that these do have a bit of a yellowish appearance. Now this is interesting, the way they involve the hands, both the dorsal and palmar aspect of the hands. You can see not only do we have little papules, but they infiltrate the creases of the knuckles. See that? And then on the palms, I don't know if you can appreciate these kind of cords. The creases are filled with this yellowish material throughout. On the ears, just a bit closer on the knee. And again, you can really appreciate the yellow uh, appearance uh, on this. So any idea, clinically, what do you think? Something infiltrative, yellow. When we think of yellow infiltrative papules, you kind of think, well, is, is there any kind of fat or involved here? Uh, so, so the clinician did a biopsy, and you see that the dermis is just 
infiltrated by these cells. And let's look at what cells they are. They're cells with a bunch of cytoplasm. You can see the nuclei here, but they're surrounded by this kind of foamy, uh, lightly colored cytoplasm. And these are xanthoma cells. These cells are packed with lipid. Uh, and uh, additional findings in this patient is he did have scleral icterus. These uh, lipid abnormalities, extremely high cholesterol, triglycerides, lower uh, HDL, LFTs were elevated, and the patient was on a Truvada and Isentris. So, your diagnosis. Well, we said they were probably xanthomas, and they are xanthomas, but this is xanthomas occurring in a very specific setting. If you didn't know this patient had HIV, you might think he has you know, type three familial hyperlipidemia in which they prevent, present with just these eruptive xanthomas and palmar xanthomas. Uh, but this is a, a, a complication of his, uh, of, his, of his status being HIV and on heart therapy. So these are eruptive and palmar xanthomas associated with HIV and heart. Now it's interesting, heart, really messes up lipid metabolism in uh, HIV-positive patients. And, and some of you that have, have seen HIV-positive patients have probably encountered uh, um, some of these changes. And this slide really demonstrates some of those changes. Uh, this lipoatrophy in the cheeks, the sunken cheeks, just the adipocytes kind of go away. In the legs, I don't know if you can appreciate this, but there is also some lipoatrophy and real accentuation of veins. They almost appear like they have just horrible uh, varicosities. There's a redistribution of adipocytes and of fat with really kind of a truncal distribution, just this thickness around the trunk uh, with, with uh, peritoneal uh, adipocytes. Also buffalo hump formation. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a buffalo hump. That's, that's pretty impressive. Uh, and also, uh, xanthomas is in our patient. So this dyslipidemia in HIV-treated uh, patients with heart, uh, heart is very effective in treating the virus, uh, but it does cause uh, these lipid abnormalities. Um, and it, it, it's a complex and incompletely understood mechanism, um, but it is related to the protease inhibitors. And these patients are at a higher risk for coronary artery disease. And this is important. In the early days of HIV infection, you know, the patients weren't living long enough to, get, to have coronary artery disease. But now patients are living a long, long time. And so this becomes an issue. So the xanthomas in this setting, this is a rare expression of hyperlipidemia and HIV. Uh, they have a diverse morphologic pattern as we've seen in our patient, eruptive, tuberous, tendinous, palmar, plain xanthomas. This is an acquired disorder. It's not familial. Some of you may have, may have seen patients with familial hyperlipidemia and xanthomas, but this is an acquired disorder. But it looks almost exactly like type three familial hyperlipidemia. How do you treat it? Well, it's tough. You can use non-pharmacological measures, you know, diet, exercise, all those things, not very effective. Um, Lipid-lowering drugs, 
may be effective, but not as effective as, as, effective as in the, as in the uh, genetic um, entity. Um, sometimes the protease inhibitors have to be substituted. Obviously, that's done in conjunction with ID. And in this patient, and in patients that have severe hyperlipidemia, uh, you may have to result to plasmapheresis. So the key points here, that this is a rare complication related to HIV lipodystrophy syndrome and dyslipidemia. It's caused by uh, the heart, uh, the protease inhibitors, and it closely resembles type 3 familial hyperlipidemia. It has various morphologies of xanthomas listed here. And treatment is tough. Okay, let's look at our fourth patient. Keeping in the HIV theme here, uh, this is a 42-year-old African-American female uh, who's HIV positive and presented with multiple verrucous nodules and plaques of the gluteal area, which you can see here. Uh, the clinical impression, I don't know about you, but you know, this really has a fairly broad clinical differential diagnosis. You know, are these just really hypertrophic, eroded, you know, condylomas? Uh, you know, is this an unusual sexually transmitted disease, such as lymphogranuloma venereum? Uh, an opportunistic infection? You know, is this, is this a neoplastic process? This is really thick and hypertrophic. And you can, I'm sorry, this picture's a bit out of focus, but here, here, here are the clinical lesions. And this was tough to biopsy. This took two biopsies to actually find the right diagnosis. In the first biopsy, uh, you can see the epidermis is very hyperplastic uh, and shows features of really kind of parigo nodularis like in simplex chronicus. But there's also a neutrophilic component and the infiltrate is quite uh, diffuse and mixed. Here we can see this kind of pustular component. So, I think initially we thought, man, this is just really bad LSC and probably just superimposed impetigenization. Uh, but it didn't respond to therapy, and, and so uh, there's just a closer view of the pustular, pustular component. So additional biopsy was performed, and it shows similar findings. We thought, man, just at, at first glance, it looks like parigo. Just this patient is really working at these lesions. But as we looked closer... And as you get closer, you start to see these cells. And these are large, giant cells with lots of nuclei molded together. So these are herpetic multinucleate keratinocytes. So, but they're just focally present in, in the epidermis, and so not in the typical kind of blister of herpes. Um, so what's your, our diagnosis here? Well, it's obviously, obviously herpes of some sort. This is termed herpes simplex vegetans in HIV. And let's talk about this, because this, uh, this is an interesting presentation. Has anybody ever seen this, kind of vegetated herpes? In HIV? You may not see a lot of HIV patients unless you're, you know, Grady or, or you know, more of a... Um, um, teaching hospital setting, perhaps. But, but this is an interesting presentation of, of herpes, uh, herpes simplex. 
Uh, it's an unusual presentation of HSV in immunocompromised patients. The lesions are exophytic and proliferative, and they can resemble a, a, an exuberant verrucous or possibly malignant growth. growth. Um, and the sites of predilection include the digits, the genital region, uh, and perioral skin. The differential diagnosis, besides what we've already mentioned, includes some of these other entities, especially because of the pustular component in eosinophils, and such as pemphigus vegetans, which can have that pustular and eosinophilic component, pyoderma vegetans, pyoderma gangrenosum, halogenoderma, you know, malignancy, NOS. And here's another example of an eyelid lesion. And you can see this, this is really is just a hypertrophic plaque on the eyelid, on the eyelid but this is uh, herpes uh, vegetans. It's just the body's response to try to control this herpetic infection. It occurs in the, in, in the setting of immunodeficiency, in, um, especially HIV and heart. The diagnosis may be challenging uh, because the herpetic infection is typically isolated and just focally present in some of the, in some of the areas. The, 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 the patient's body is trying to deal with this herpetic infection. The, their immune system is not normal and competent. So they have this hyperplastic epidermal response. They have this pustular response, this eosinophilic response. Uh, so it somewhat controls but does not eliminate the herpetic uh, infection. It may require multiple biopsies, cultures, smears. Uh, you can pull out your nice... I, I love the, 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 uh, the plug for the zinc smear. It's a great, great smear. It's, it's very helpful uh, in the clinic. Um, valacyclovir is still largely effective, um, but most cases are resistant to acyclovir. So in this patient, additional history, uh, actually, the, at this point, there was down to one plaque, and it was excised without recurrence. Uh, the clinicians were never able to culture the herpes virus, uh, and the patient has been maintained on valacyclovir and acyclovir. So the key points is that um, this should be in your differential uh, of a rapidly growing mass in immunocompromised patients, especially if it's in the genital region. The diagnosis may be challenging and elusive, but the diagnosis is strongly suggestive of an underlying immunodeficiency, particularly HIV, uh, if you get this in a pathology report. Treatment, um, resistant to acyclovir, but valacyclovir is largely effective. Okay, let's, let's move on to our fifth case here. Um, kind of along the same theme. This is kind of an interesting patient, 18-year-old. He's got this tender eruption on the side of his neck. Interesting bit of history uh, that you may not get every day. Uh, he had wrestled in the state semifinals the weekend prior. I'm not sure how that bit of history came out, but, but, but there you have it. And the po the, his opponent had an open sore. Well, he was placed on valacyclovir and uh, Bactrim. So here are the lesions. You can see these along the side of the neck, extending up to the, to, the, to the cheek. And here's the biopsy. And here we have our friend, the multinucleate keratinocyte. So this is herpes. Well, why am I showing you another case of herpes? Well, this is an interesting diagnosis that's called herpes gladiatorum. And this is herpes 
acquired in the setting of, of wrestling or contact sports. Uh, uh, and it's interesting. Uh, this patient was kept on valcyclovir and Bactrim, uh, referred to ENT and ophthalmology, and unfortunately wasn't able to participate in the state wrestling championship because of this infection. And this is important because you may actually run into patients, uh, you know, who are wrestlers and, and come to you with, with, this, with these questions. It's typically due to HSV-1, and 80% of adults and adolescents are seropositive for HSV-1. So most of us have been exposed. However, only 30% of seropositive patients have clinically apparent outbreaks. But all seropositive individuals may have episodes of viral shedding. Um, and that's important. This occurs as a result of direct contact with active lesions or secretions, uh, often on uh, abraded skin or mucosa. And of course, in wrestling, you have many opportunities to, to have abraded skin from either clothing or the mat. Other contact sports, same thing. Um, and it occurs four to 11 days after exposure. Uh, typically looks like vesicles on an erythematous base, just like herpes does. Uh, the distribution, though, is, is, may give you a clue to it often arms, trunk, head, and neck, and it may favor the dominant side of the, of the body. Uh, you know, here, here these guys are in kind of a mutual headlock, and you can see why uh, you would have the outbreaks on the arms and on the face and the neck, because this is, this is where a lot of the contact is occurring. Um, associated symptoms typical with herpes uh, and viral, you can of course diagnose this with viral culture, zinc, or skin biopsy. Um, now, the role of antiviral therapy, this is why your patients may ask you about. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, you have an active outbreak you want to treat. Uh, patients who have a, a known history of oral labial herpes uh, probably need to be treated, especially during uh, wrestling season. Uh, and um, if a patient is seronegative, now, well, they may, how are you going to know? I mean, it's no. Most people don't get serologies for herpes, uh, but you might consider doing prophylactic uh, antiviral therapy during the season. So here are the key points uh, for herpes gladiatorum. Um, wrestlers with active outbreaks should not participate in events. And in fact, I think I've been told, um, maybe some of you have brothers or, or children who are involved in, in wrestling. Uh, you know, prior to the events, they are inspected. And I've been told that, that when you get serious in wrestling, and if you do have herpes, the, the, uh, you know, the competitors, some of them will actually kind of sandpaper them down to, to, to kind of mask the typical appearance of herpes because they, they don't want to forfeit the match. Uh, uh, but they are inspected. Uh, you don't want, to, don't want to wrestle with anyone who has an open sore. Uh, and wrestles with known oral labial herpes should be on antiviral therapy during the season. And you might consider prophylactic antiviral therapy in seronegative wrestlers. So that's a, a very niche kind of uh, uh, group of patients, but someone that you might run across in your practices. All right, let's look at this patient. Y'all doing okay? Okay. Uh, here's a 22-year-old male from Africa who uh, in January 2012 presented with this worsening eruption. Now, he was generally asymptomatic, uh, denied any history of prior illness and on no meds. And here's the eruption. I've got a lot of photos. You can just take a look at it. 
See this, these kind of hypopigmented zones on his trunk and here on the face, on the forehead, almost going into the seborrheic area. As you get a little closer, you can almost see that these maybe have a little substance to them, kind of thin plaques, hypopigmented. Well, this patient had a KOH prep, which was positive and, and was diagnosed with tinea versicolor. Makes sense. Got this diffuse hypopigmented uh, eruption. Was treated and improved. However, the more indurated, flat-topped papules did not respond and persisted. So a biopsy was then subsequently performed with, with clinical differential of LP, MF, maybe persistent tinea versicolor. And here's some other lesions, almost kind of a lichenitidous look, these small little papules on the dorsal hand. Here you might even think maybe this is Veruca plana, flat warts. So here's the biopsy. A couple of biopsies actually were performed at the same time. And you can see a thickening of this granular layer. It's hyperkeratotic. And these are the unusual cells here. You can see the nuclei are open and vesicular, and they're demonstrating coilocytosis. When you hear coilocytosis, you think HPV. Um, but in addition to that, they also have abundant bluish cytoplasm, which is kind of unusual and very pretty specific for this entity. See this? Here's the nucleus. See this bluish material here? This, this, that's... Uh, those are the cells. Another biopsy that shows similar changes. Well, this is, this is pretty characteristic of an entity called epidermodysplasia verusiformis. That's a mouthful. Uh, but there are two different types, a genetic and an acquired form. Uh, let's, let's look at this. Additional clinical history in this patient. Well, it turns out the patient was actually HIV positive. Uh, and uh, he was on these meds here, uh, and there was no family history. He did not have any, any genetic uh, uh, history, and he was treated with tretinoin on his face. So this is the variant of epidermodysplasia verusiformis that is associated in HIV. Now, this was fairly recently described a couple of years ago. Um, uh, in, I think this, where was this? This was the Archives of Dermatology. Um, uh, and um, epidermal dysplasia verusiformis, typically it's a rare disorder of widespread infection with certain specific HPV types, 5, 8, 17, 20. The types 5 and 8 are typically associated with the malignant EV lesions, uh, and off, often multiple HPV types are present in these individuals. Classic epidermodysplasia verusiformis is an autosomal recessive genodermatosis, and it occurs secondary to the ever um, uh, genes. Um, in HIV, this entity can occur, and to date only 36 cases, cases have been reported. Uh, it's, these lesions are treatment resistant. Heart does not seem to really alter the course. Uh, and it requires prolonged careful follow-up for possible other HPV or candidal malassezia infections and lymphoproliferative diseases. In classic EV, the patients are uh, commonly develop squamous cell carcinomas over time. Uh, in the HIV setting, it's less, less commonly seen. So the key point is, is 
Epidermal dysplasia verruciformis in HIV is, is a distinct clinical entity. It may look like tinea versicolor, maybe um, lichen planus, maybe just flat warts. Uh, maybe these patients have a polymorphism of the ever gene. Further studies may reveal that. So that, that's kind of a zebra. Let's, let's, let's look at kind of an interesting case that you may, you may run across, and certainly um, in today's world, uh, where tattoos are becoming much more common. Uh, let's look at a tattoo, a tattoo case. Uh, uh, here's an 18-year-old guy. Had a tattoo, noticed a rash within the gray shaded areas of the tattoo. Now this, 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 this individual had a family history of sarcoidosis, also lupus. And so looking at this, you might think, well, is this just some kind of funny response to the tattoo? Maybe an allergic reaction to the tattoo? Certainly, you know, we all know that you know, red pigment tends to um, elicit an allergic response. Patients can get a real granulomatous infiltrate to certain tattoos. There have been even reported, uh, reported cases of KA-like lesions occurring in tattoos. Uh, just a lot of different react tattoo reactions. Um, so maybe that's what's going on. Or, or maybe the process of putting the tattoo in the skin caused trauma and triggered sarcoidosis. As you, as you probably know, sarcoidosis can arise in areas of trauma, especially scars, uh, and maybe that's what's going on. So here it is. Here's the tattoo. And as you can see, the more evenly, darkly pigmented zones are spared, but these were the gray shaded areas. And you just get these clusters of papules forming plaques. So a biopsy. And we see some inflammation. Now here's a hair follicle. That's just there. That was just by the luck of the draw. The infiltrate is a mixed infiltrate. It has, and here's some of the tattoo pigment, this little fine granular stuff. But uh, PAS stain was negative because it had a mixed infiltrate, loose granulomatous, some neutrophils, and AFB stain was negative. But it still smacked, maybe is this infectious? Uh, so a tissue culture was done, and lo and behold, Mycobacteria chelonii grows out. Uh, the patient was placed on azithromycin, and uh, six months into the treatment, uh, almost entirely clear. So this is an atypical mycobacterial infection occurring in a tattoo. So you might ask, well, is this just a one-off kind of unusual you know, setting, you know, I'm never going to see this again. Uh, well, it, it's interesting. A lot of different infections have been associated with tattoos, bacterial, syphilis, leprosy, AFBs, HIV, hepatitis, you know, over, over, over the years. And mycobacterial infections in tattoos are a more common finding that, is, that have been reported recently. These two reports, Kruger and Drake, reported uh, two separate uh, sets of patients very similar. And so we'll kind of group them together and look at them together. They had 14 patients in all, uh, and they were all tattooed in the same parlor, two separate groups. Um, the eruption occurred within one to three weeks of tattoo placement, and it was limited to the gray areas of shading in the tattoo. And here's, here's a picture of one of their uh, patients. Uh, 
Well, in, in all of their patients, it was difficult to identify the organisms. The stains were often negative. The, the cultures were negative often. But it had a granulomatous and separative infiltrate was really smacked of infection. But they were just unable to find it. Um, it turns out that all of these patients were treated uh, from the same tattoo parlor and that AFB was found in the ink of these, of these tattoo, in these tattoo parlors. They were all treated with the macrolide antibiotics and 13 of them cleared, one lost to follow love. That's the good news. Well, it's interesting that these infections typically occurred in the shaded zones of the tattoo. And shading is considered desirable in tattoos. It, you know, adds depth in, to the image. Uh, and the tattoo artist, you know, layers different shades of the same color, starting with the lightest. And they dilute the ink to achieve these different shades. The problem is there's really no industry standard in place for diluting tattoo inks. And in these two tattoo parlors and, you know, likely elsewhere, municipal water tap water is often used in the rinse solution for dilution of ink for shading. As we know, tap water is the reservoir for many non-tuberculoid mycobacteria. And in fact, in our laboratory and in, in, in most laboratories, this is a problem. We, we will often, uh, well, not often, but you know, every, every couple of years, we'll, we'll have an atip, we'll have an a AFB um, uh, overgrowth either in, in one of the inks or in one of the bottles. Uh, and so we have to be very careful and that we're filtering and that we're changing out because AFB lives in the water, in the municipal water. And the same ink source uh, in these parlors uh, may be used on multiple clients. So you might see these little outbreaks. So the key points uh, in, in mycobacterial in tattoos is have a high index of suspicion for infection in new tattoos with shading. You know, if, if you see that and you get a, a biopsy of separative and granulomatous inflammation, you know, be aware. Uh, and you may not be able to culture it out. You may not be able to see the organisms. Try the macrolid uh, antibiotics. Um, treat, you can treat empirically. All right. Well, here's another interesting patient. A lot of words. I'll, I'll kind of condense it here. This patient, 57-year-old woman, goes to Kenya steps on a thorn, takes the thorn out, comes back home, still has this persistent lesion on the bottom of her foot. There it is. Now, you know, you always, it's always interesting when you get these, the his, these travel histories. Uh, you know, a lot of times it's just a red herring. Uh, but, but this time you think, wow, okay, I was in Kenya, I did something to my foot, and, and, and this thing is still there. And you can see it's this dark colored zone on the volar aspect, uh, uh, plantar aspect of the foot. It has this little rim of hyperkeratosis, almost like it's a wide pore there. And you can see he's been covering it with a Band-Aid there. Did a biopsy. And this is what we see. We see Thick, 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 thick stratum corneum, which is normal. You know, we, we all have thick stratum corneum on the bottom of our feet so we can walk around. Uh, but what's abnormal is this structure right here and all this inflammatory component here. And you can see this is the stratum corneum. This is this abnormal structure which has a chitinous appearance. Uh, 
And these are all these little circles here. Look like internal organs of something that shouldn't be there. Infiltrate lots of eosinophils, these cells with brightly eosinophilic cytoplasm. So eosinophils, you think uh, an allergic response. So this is an unusual entity, but you, 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 you may run across this, especially in patient, you know, we're a global uh, society here and we have a lot of people going to Africa or going to South America, maybe on mission, mission trips or, you know, tourism, going to the beach. Uh, and so this is tongiasis. What is tongiasis? Well, Tungiasis is caused by a flea. This is the smallest flea out there, uh, Tunga penetrans. Uh, and uh, Gonzales, the Spanish conquistador, Gonzales Fernandez de Oviedo, was the first uh, author to, to uh, describe this. And early on, he noticed that the Spanish uh, conquistadors in Haiti suffered from this disease on the bottom of their feet. Uh, and it may have been inadvertently sent over to Africa, you know, with ships, but it started, it was first described in the New World. Now, Tunga fleas, they live in sandy areas and use various mammals as their reservoirs, uh, you know, whoops, from humans, pigs, dogs, cattle, etc. cetera. Uh, and, the, you know, most fleas jump. You know, anybody that has dogs and cats, you know, you notice that, you know, fleas are jumping. Uh, but these don't jump very well, so they burrow uh, on the, under the bottom of, you, of your foot. Um, and the females, uh, they basically, they don't claw their way into the epidermis. They kind of chew their way into, into your stratum corneum. Uh, and after they get into the stratum corneum, they kind of burrow into, through the epidermis. And, of course, they're, they're blood-sucking um, organisms. And... Um, so the pathognomonic features, the clinical features, are inflammation, swelling, redness, and you usually have this black or darkly colored uh, spot on the bottom of the foot with a central kind of pore, and it's, it may be variably inflamed erythematous. And that black, dark brown spot is the actual flea itself. Now the life cycle, the, the flea... Uh, this is the flea in, inside the foot. It sheds these, these eggs. Of course, it goes through um, you know, these various stages of development uh, and then penetrates the foot again. And here's a scanning electromicrograph of the flea. Here are the eggs. The, 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 the female gets so gravid. I mean, it just, it's almost you know, 90% eggs and then and then just lets them go and there they are complications super infection bacterial super infection is the most common uh sometimes tetanus uh and uh, lymphadenitis cellulitis um so you got to check out their tetanus vaccination history so what do you do with these things basically you just remove them you just you just surgically excise them or debride them um, you can use topical ivermectin, uh, these, these other anti-helminthics, um, but, uh, uh, and often antibiotic is prescribed just, just for super infection. So the key points, um, you need to look, be aware of this in um, areas uh, of the Caribbean, parts of Africa. 
the histology will identify the organism for you. Uh, eosinophils represent a more hypersensitivity reaction to it, and you want to excise these lesions. All right, here we go. Next patient. Now, here's a 57-year-old woman, has a history of crack cocaine use. And she presented with these large necrotic hemorrhagic bullae and plaques on the legs for about one week. And you can see this. Just geographic angular zones of necrosis and purpura. You can see the epidermis is about to slough off there. Very hemorrhagic, purpuric, necrotic. So a biopsy was performed. And it's so necrotic that here the epidermis is gone. It's just sloughed. It's just become necrotic. It doesn't look like there's a lot of inflammation here, but if we look at the vessels here, they're engorged with blood vessels and fibrin. They're filled with fibrin. They're plugged up. So that's why the skin is necrosing. They're, 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 you have a vaso-occlusive process. The, the blood vessels are just being plugged up. And here is a nice large one plugged with fibrin. The eccrine coils are necrotic. So this patient developed pretty significant neutropenia and had a positive Pianca uh, antibody test. So what's this diagnosis? Well, this is a kind of a becoming a more common problem uh, in the cocaine world. Uh, and this is levamisole cocaine-induced vasculopathy. This is rapidly becoming an emerging complication of cocaine use, and there have been several, several cases reported since 2008. Levamisole is a white powder. It's, a, it's, it's used as a cutting powder to kind of, you know, basically make the, you know, the, the, the drug dealers want to make their cocaine go, go longer. So they're cutting it, they're diluting out the cocaine with this, with this uh, powder. So you say, what is levamisole? Well, it's an anti-helminthic uh, medication. It also has some immunomodulatory uh, uh, properties. Uh, and currently, it's, it's a veterinary drug. So I suppose that's where they're getting it. Um, uh, it may potentiate the euphoric effects of cocaine. Uh, and apparently, 70% of cocaine is contaminated with levamisole. Patients that develop this uh, vasculopathy, uh, they have a rapid onset typically within 24 hours of cocaine use. The presentation is, is as here. You have this redeformed purpura with extensive necrosis. Lower extremities are most commonly involved, but the pathognomonic involvement is, a, is across the, uh, the, the cheeks and the nose and the ears. Patients may have arthralgias and flu-like symptoms as well. Now, this is from a publication, and, and this is kind of the pathognomonic finding. You see necrosis uh, of the skin on the ears and cheeks, and along the, uh, I mean, cheeks and nose, and then along the ears. Almost you might think of a, um, like a cryoglobulinemia, uh, you know, a cryofibrinogenemia, a cold-induced uh, process. Um, Pathologically, this is a thrombotic vasculopathy, so the vessels are just being plugged up. Uh, they may also have an inflammatory component leading to a vasculitis. The DIF, if you're going to do immunofluorescence, you may find IgM or C3 around vessels. This medication, levamisole, also induces neutropenia, and so these patients can be very neutropenic or develop agranulocytosis. Uh, they typically have positive P-ANCAs. So that's, that's, that's an important test to, to order. 
or human uh, neutrophil elastase antibodies. Um, however, other primary vasculopathic and vasculitic disorders, you know, you got to think about. How do you manage these patients? Well, you debride the necrotic areas, antibiotics for uh, uh, cases complicated by fever and neutropenia. Systemic steroids are a bit controversial. The data is inconclusive. Um, it may be helpful in more inflammatory lesions, patients that are actually having true vasculitis. Uh, but the majority of patients resolve without sequela within several weeks after cocaine cessation. But it will recur uh, if you do it again. So here, here are the key points. This is an increasingly recognized complication of cocaine use. It's often associated with neutropenia and ankypositivity. It self-resolves, but does subsequently recur with subsequent use. All right, our next patient. Here's a 56-year-old female. Has a month history of a painful ulcerated area on the upper back. So, and here it is. You know, the thought was, well, it's kind of roundish. Is it a funny fixed drug eruption? It's a little eroded, and maybe it's a funny contact dermatitis, irritant dermatitis. It almost looks kind of burnish, you know. It, 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 it's eroded. Or is it something factitial this patient's been doing? Uh, here's a nicer view of it. Here's her head. Here's her back, kind of shoulder. So a biopsy. Uh, let's see if we can figure this out. As we look closer, we can see that there's an interface dermatitis and an unusual alteration of the epidermis, dismaturation and uh, dyskeratosis, a predominantly lymphocytic infiltrate. And upon further questioning, the patient actually now remembers that she had had a four-hour coronary stenting procedure prior to the onset of this lesion. Well, still you might think, okay, coronary stenting procedure, you know, how is that? Maybe she lean on that side too, too long? I mean, what's, what's going on? Well, this is also a more commonly recognized disorder. This is fluoroscopy-induced radiation dermatitis. And this is an interesting uh, entity because it's not at all uh, apparent. You know, when, when you ask someone, well, have you had, you know, radiation treatment? You know, they say, no, I, I haven't been radiated. But these procedures actually go on for, can go on for quite, quite a long time, and the patients can get a significant radiation dosage. Clinically, these are characteristic uh, oval to angular-shaped lesions on the upper back scapular area. Um, the clinical and histologic picture may look like a fixed drug eruption. Fixed drug eruption presents as an interface dermatitis. And so you might, well, maybe this is a fixed drug eruption. Uh, later lesions, they become more bound down and sclerotic and morpheiform. Uh, and often the patient does not recall a history of radiation exposure because they don't associate uh, coronary stenting or radi you know, procedure with actually uh, having received a significant dosage of radiation. Early. The lesions look like this, kind of eroded erythematous plaques. Late uh, lesions become more bound down and sclerotic, morphia-like. Well, the rising incidence correlates with an increased fluoroscopic guided in intervention, interventional procedures. And uh, where these things occur on the body are often determined by what type of procedure the patient has had. Uh, interventional coronary, uh, coronary procedures, typically the lesions occur in the scapular area, 
scapular area more, more commonly. Cardiac radiofrequency ablation, the lesions occur on the lateral back and axilla. Transjugular intrahepatic postsystemic shunt uh, procedures typically occur on the mid-back. So it's just another uh, couple of pictures from the literature uh, of an eroded lesion. Acute lesions show the interface dermatitis. Older chronic lesions show features of morphia, just thickened in sclerotic dermis. So the key points here are this is a well-demarcated de oval to angular-shaped lesion that occurs on a characteristic locations on the back and axilla. The history of radiation exposure may not be readily apparent, so you, ha you have to ask him, well, have you had a coronary procedure? You know, have you had any, any prolonged procedure that, that might put you at risk? The clinical and histologic findings may mimic fixed drug eruption early on, or later on may look more like morphia or um, lichen sclerosis. Okay, just uh, maybe one more case. Uh, now, this is an interesting case because it brings up uh, an interesting differential. Uh, this is a 15-year-old male with a firm plaque straddling the nose, the nasal root, and the nasal wall. Patient is Indonesian, doesn't speak English, so it's hard to know how long this, this lesion has been there, but it was thought to be there since infancy. So you, here you have the lesion. And the thought was, maybe this is a dermoid cyst. Like we recognize that maybe this is a congenital process. You know, we're, we're always worried about midline lesions, you know, on the scalp, you know, along, along the, the spinal cord, uh, along the nose. And here we have here, biopsy. Normal epidermis and dermis. Some change down here deep in the subcutis where you see an increase in vessels and also these cells here. That as we look, these cells kind of have a very neural appearance and they stain strongly with the S100 protein. And they have this, this very, you can see they have long dendritic processes these are glial cells or astrocytes, uh, and this is a nasal glioma. Now, nasal gliomas, they're an embryonic abnormality. They basically consist of heterotopic neural tissue. Shouldn't be there. Glial tissue. Most of them are extranasal. Although it's called nasal gliomas, they're extra, their skin on the nose 30% actually involve the interior portion of the nose only, and 10% are combined, most commonly in males, most often present in infancy, but may present later on in uh, childhood and in, in, uh, in teen years. Now, this really brings up the differential diagnosis of congenital midline masses, uh, facial midline masses. And the three entities that you want to consider are nasal glioma, encephalocele, and dermoid cyst. What's nice is that there are very good physical exam clues that can help you differentiate between these three entities. Okay? First, let's look at wh what do they feel like? Well, nasoglioma and dermoid cysts are firm. Encephalocele are soft and compressible, and they tend to have a bluish tint to them. Location can be helpful as well. Nasogliomas are usually below the glabella on the midline or kind of lateral, as in our patient, kind of straddling the root of the nose. Encephalocele can be on the forehead often, 
but forehead to nose. Dermoid cysts are usually midline around the nasal dorsum. Now, if you have the patient Valsalva, that can be very helpful because in encephalocele's, the encephalocele will actually increase in size with Valsalva, but there'll be no change with nasal glioma or dermoid cysts. Encephalocele's can also be transilluminated as opposed to the other two. The Furstenberg test is just a test in which the internal um, jugular veins are compressed, and in encephalocele's, you'll see an increase in size of the, of the clinical lesion. Well, this is an embry embryologic process, and you see the frontal and nasal bones during, uh, during uh, 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 growth basically fuse here. But with nasal glioma, you have a herniation of brain material, and then you have a fusing of these bones. So you just have a little bit of nub of, of uh, glial tissue. 15% of these lesions have a persistent CNS connection afterwards. And here's an imaging study of the nasal glioma here. Now, encephalocele's are a major herniation of brain material and a persistent connection, as you see here. It's just a herniated beneath the nasal bone in this case. 100% of these patients have a persistent CNS connection, as shown in this imaging study. Dermoid cysts here, and dermoid cysts, 25% have a CNS connection, as shown here. So imaging studies prior to the procedure are important. And MRIs are better initially because they help detect the CNS connection, but CTs are better for bony defects, and these lesions should be completely excised. So the key points here are that this is a congenital midline nasal mass, and they may occur just in the skin, extranasal, or they may also have an intranasal component. They present from infancy to late childhood, 15% have a persistent CNS connection, so imaging studies are important to, uh, to exclude any persistent uh, CNS connection and prevent complications. All right, I think we'll stop there. I appreciate your attention, and uh, uh, any questions? Wondering if there are guidelines in the literature about prophylactic treatment of herpes gladiatorum or if that's just something you do. Um, I think you use the, the typical prophylactic, you know, treatment as you would, um, uh, you know, for, for typical pro prophylaxis. The problem is, um, you know, if you have a patient, you know, if you have a patient that is constantly outbreaking, then, then you, you'll put them on prophylactic uh, therapies. I think the dosage is, is the same. What do you typically use? Uh, well, I think, uh, you know, e e either of them, you know, valcyclovir, uh, you know, acyclovir, wh wh whichever your, yours is, you know, your, your veer of choice. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. With pancreatic paniculitis, what is that PATH report going to look like? In other words, is the pathologist going to be able to indicate its underlying systemic disease? They should indicate uh, in some form or another. Now, you're, you're probably not going to get a pathology report that's on the, the diagnosis line, pancreatic paniculitis. Right. You know, but it will be a you know, lobular paniculitis with extensive ghost cell necrosis suggestive of pancreatic paniculitis or in a comment 
suggest that this is a pancreatic paniculitis. So there should be some reference to that. Great. Thank you.